Good morning to you. Let's try to get good morning. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, let's go John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Again, if you're new to the Christian faith or you're exploring the Christian faith and you don't have a Bible, there's one under the chair in front of you. We'd love for you to take that and have that uh, as a gift from us to you. And then uh, we'll be on page 905 in that particular Bible. And so again, if you don't have one and you need one, please take that as a gift from us. Uh, And we'll be on page 905. You'll find the larger number, it says 19, and then we'll be reading those uh, first 16 verses. So, well, before we read this uh, incredible word, I want to just maybe encourage us to think through what we're getting ready to read. Um, Oftentimes, um, when we come to the Easter story, we come to these last week of Jesus' life, uh, for many in this room, uh, this is a familiar text. Uh, it's a familiar story. We, we've, uh, we're, we're accustomed to sort of what it's going to say. And, and so what happens is <clears throat> we tend um, to, to see it the way I saw last week's March Madness game. Uh, March Madness last week, I love this time of year. And uh, there was a particular game where the game uh, ended with an amazing three, an amazing two, and it was back and forth. And I was actually watching it um, on my phone. And uh, as I was watching it uh, with the last 30 seconds to go, uh, the phone freezes, but the, the, I could still hear what's happening. And it was devastating, right? Uh, I could hear, I think he hit a shot. Yes, he did. The place is crowd's going nuts. Then, then another shot's made. I could hear. And then it's, oh, it's, oh. And, and, and it's, it's frozen. The, 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 the game's frozen here, but I hear it in one and I wanted to rejoice, but I didn't see it, but I've heard it. <clears throat> and so it's a mess. And so I go to grandparents' house, uh, to, to my kids' grandparents' house, my in-laws, and they have this incredible cool system that some of you may have where you could just hit a button and it backs it up so you can rewatch it, right? We used to have to tape it back in the day and hit rewind on a VCR. That's the way we did it, right? And so, so they, 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 they took it back and, uh, and I sat on the couch with anticipation of celebrating, but, but I really didn't because I already knew what happened. And so there was, there was a little bit of tension there. I knew he'd made the shot. I knew the team had won. And, uh, and so when he made it, I didn't come off the couch, right? Shouting because I already knew about 20 minutes before who had actually won. And oftentimes, this is how we come to the text and these stories about Easter, right? There's a familiarity with this. I'm praying that as we read this today, we wouldn't stay on the couch, right? And that there would be something deep in us that maybe could read it afresh this morning, the Word of God. And so let's listen and read together chapter 19. Then... Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, Pilate, as you know, from 28 of chapter 18 to this verse, he's on trial. He's on trial with the Roman governor. And so this governor, Pilate, takes Jesus and flogs him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you. 
that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word. Let's pray. Father, we read this word. It's a, it's a weighty word. It's an intense word. And God, we ask that now at this hour, you would really help us to, to learn together, to, to see together, to behold your son and grow to a knowledge of all that you've accomplished for us in your son. So we love you and commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever compromised and did what was wrong when you knew what was right at the pressure of people? I have. I'm sure many have. I remember specifically one time when I was in high school, junior year, I had just gotten a a, a new truck. It wasn't a new truck. It was a used truck. There was a an amazing couple in our church. My dad was a pastor of a small country church and loved growing up in that area of Southern Virginia, a little small town, small community. And uh, this particular couple in my dad's church, were their names were Herman and Nanny Lawson. And Herman and Nanny had, uh, Nanny had never driven in her life. She never got her license. And so Herman drove her everywhere she needed to go to the marketplace or whatever. And they just had a, a, a sweet marriage. And he died first, and then she couldn't drive, and so she had to sell the vehicles. And so my parents and I were able to buy his truck that was uh, $400, worth about 200 
1966 Chevy pickup truck with three on the column, the clutch. So we bring this truck home and um, I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> I'll get out here. We, it, it's, that particular model, most older models are just metal. And so there was a lot of rust spots on it. And so we ended up taping up the rust spots with tape. And then we hand painted the truck uh, red. I painted it red. I wanted a red truck. And so we hand painted it. And then my mom actually painted the, the, the dashboard black with a, with a paintbrush. You could see the little paint lines. It was awesome. And then uh, I, put a, I put a cassette tape inside the, there and got a radio going, right? And that year, there was a popular movie out called Top Gun. And so I got the soundtrack for Top Gun, put it in, played the song Danger Zone, driving a 66 Chevy truck, right? And as I'm driving, I couldn't get over 45 miles an hour because it would start using oil, right? But I'm li- and this is a song that was played to jets flying, right? And, and I'm, <laughs> there's some tension here. But I thought I was the man on campus with this truck. And so this particular day after school, they, the crowd, as we would all gather in the parking lot, the, most of those that could drive, uh, juniors and seniors, we would d- talk about things in life. And then there was a massive hill at the back of the parking lot that I was began to be challenged to take the truck up the hill on this grounds, right? Now, kids in the room, bad, bad idea, right? And, and so at the pressure of the crowd... Um, I not only do this, but my friend gets on the front of the hood and hangs on to the hood um, as I go up. No idea why, other than complete dumb. And, and so, so, so we, we get, I throw it in first, start spinning some wheels. I get on the hill, we get, we're going, throw it in second, make it all the way to the top. He's alive, that's good news. Right? He gets off, we were rejoicing. People are clapping. I love the appraisal of man, right? And, and just wanting to be liked so badly by all the high school. And then I go home playing the song Danger Zone. I was just in it on a hill, right, uh, in my truck. I get back to school the next morning, very early the next morning. The first thing that we hear over the intercom system that traveled throughout the entire public high school was, would Dave Owen please come to the office immediately? <laughs> Right, it's like, oh my, this is not going to go well at all, especially when they let my parents know what I had done, and so we'll leave the rest to your imagination of what happened, but I caved and compromised what I knew, what I knew was wrong, right, and the governor this morning the Roman governor is going to coward and compromise what he knows to be right. So much so that he'll say, he'll say three to four to five times throughout the hearing, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. And so I want to I show you three truths this morning that I'm praying that God would use to solidify your confidence in Jesus in such a way that you would never compromise your relationship with Jesus. Because listen, if we're not anchored in Jesus, there's a current that's underlining, right? A current of compromise that will flow and it'll grab you and it'll take you. Oftentimes like the ocean waters move you and you don't even know you're moving until you look up onto the shore and see the reference point that you've moved. The shore didn't move, you moved. And this is what happens in our 
culture. And so the first truth is this, is Jesus is the substitute who suffered in our place. Jesus is the one who suffered in our place. See, one, what we're going to see in the text, right? You've got Jewish leaders and this Roman governor, and they're, they're oblivious to being who they are in front of, this man, this Messiah, this Son of God, the one who's done miracle after miracle after miracle. And one group will curse him to the point of pushing for his death, and the other will, will coward and cave to, to the crowd and order his death. There's spiritual blindness everywhere in this text, and he's the very, the very son of God is before them. See, this is what happens, spiritual blindness does. Spiritual blindness is so devastating. It, it, it's like someone jumping out of a plane without a parachute, but they feel as if there's freedom and they're not restricted by anything. And yet, destruction and devastation awaits them. And so in verse one, notice what happens. He takes Jesus. He's already, we looked at last week, he's already um, been, Pilate's even said, I don't find any guilt in him. And they're pressing in, the crowd's pressing in. The, the tension in this trial is only going to grow. And he's in a dilemma. And so he takes them and has them flogged. When they would flog people then, it's pretty horrific where they would tie their hands and strip their back of clothing and beat them to the point where they would literally bleed. Many would actually die of this type of flogging. And so this was somewhat minimized, I think, by Pilate before the cross because he's trying to just show the crowd that he's kind of for them, right? And he wants to, to really help them to see that, that he is going to adhere to them, but he also right, wants to impress Rome. Right? He's got leaders there. He's got people on the inside, in a sense, there in Rome that he wants to impress, that he's got things under control. And so there's this tension going back and forth. So he has them flogged, and then the soldiers twist this crown and put on his head. They press it into his head where he's bleeding from his head. They put a, a, a robe on him in verse one tells us, and this is no robe of royalty, this is a mockery of royalty. And they come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Think about this one particular text and cross reference of studying this week shows that not only did they smack him and hit him, but some actually spit in his face. They actually spat on him. Can you imagine that face that day? Can you imagine the very face? that will give light to all of heaven because of the glory of his face. This is the one they were spitting on in this moment. And then he says, behold the man. He brings them out. And when he says, behold the man, he's hoping, right, that, that this punishment would be sufficient, would be satisfactory. He even says in verse four, if you look at verse four, he says, I'm bringing him out that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so when he comes out, he says, behold the man. And then the chief priests and the officers saw him. And what you would think is sufficient enough punishment, but yet he's still an innocent man. So no punishment is really sufficient. But in this case, this is what he's doing. He's trying to please the crowd. The chief priests see him and they don't say release him. They say crucify him. I mean, it's like, The flogging has whetted their appetite for more. And what's fascinating is these 
Jewish leaders, right? Their, their law found in Leviticus gave them a right to stone people that would, would make such claims, but it's a, it's a festival going on. This Passover, thousands are coming, right? So they're not going to pull this off during this week. So they're trying to get the Roman governor to do it and to put them on a tree, to put them on a cross, which I think in the back of these guys' minds, they knew that Deuteronomy taught that the one who's put on a tree is actually one that's cursed by God. And so they're, they're even pushing for the son of God who will take the curse of sin to be under a curse. The irony of this text is overwhelming at times. Oh, the one who would, would hang on a cross and take the, in a sense, the curse for us. He's the promised one, right? In Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, we learned that God made us and created us and we've rebelled against him. We've rejected him. And yet he sent this one who lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserve, was raised from life, from the dead on the third day to newness of life. And he gives life to those who trust and repent and turn and place their faith in him. He's our substitute. When you have a substitute teacher, it's not an assistant teacher that just comes and helps the teacher. It's one who replaces the teacher. And this is what he's done. He has replaced us in a sense where we deserve God's wrath. He was cast out so that we could be brought in. He was mocked so that we could be made new. He was the one who received the greatest injustice so that we could be justified. This is what's taking place in the text. 2 Corinthians says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Can you imagine that this morning, Providence? That we have the righteousness of Christ given to us when we believe on him. And our sin is transferred in a sense to him on that day when he absorbed God's wrath for our sins. And so let's be a people who worship. Let's be a people who worship Jesus in spirit and truth. Let's just respond and worship by him being the one. We're the ones that should be on trial. We're the, we're the ones that, that, that have made a mockery in a sense. His, his crown of creation, Psalm 8 says, humanity, male, female, created in the image of God. We're the ones that have turned on him. And so let's worship him. He's our substitute who suffered we should be the ones that suffer God's wrath in our place. The second truth is this, is Jesus is the sovereign who sustains us with his grace. He is the sovereign. He is the ruler. He's the one in control. Look at verse eight. Look at what happens in verse eight, where Pilate heard this statement coming from verse seven, where verse seven, the Jews have said, now look, he's claimed to be the son of God. And this is why we want to kill him. And then Pilate hears this statement and he's even more afraid, right? To, it, which indicates that there was some fear already there if he's growing in fear, right? And Matthew chapter 27 tells us specifically that his wife early that morning had come to him and had a dream that this person, this Jesus is a righteous man, do nothing to him. And so you've got that voice going on. You, you've got the idea that he, this man's cl- claimed to be the son of God. You've got the Jews that are screaming to crucify him. He's in your headquarters, dripping blood off his forehead, dripping blood off his back, right? The tension of the trial is only growing in a sense. I mean, the oscillation of 
Pilate, right? He, seven different times he goes back into his headquarters to interrogate Jesus. Then he comes back out to the public to all the Jewish people crying out to him. Could you imagine the travel time of back and forth, what's going through his mind? He's physically oscillating, which is only a reflection of his undivided heart. And the temptation to compromise the truth of Christ is so strong and so evident in our text. And the voices of our culture do the same, right? Many of you in this room are oscillating between committing to Jesus and compromising all you know to be true of Jesus. Look, you want to remain neutral on certain issues that Jesus has been clear on. You want to remain neutral. There's no spiritual neutrality when it comes to God. It's always a slippery slope, right? Like this car that had parked it in neutral. He thought everything was going to be good, right? And then boom, right? This is where you go spiritually as well. When you think you can cruise in neutral and try to follow Jesus, it's, it's not going to happen. To be neutral or indifferent to Jesus is to oppose Jesus. He calls us to be followers, not fans. Listen, listen, you drift with the culture. It's dangerous. You may end up abandoning everything you believe about God. When you drift in a, in a car racing, right? It, it, drifting in, a, in car racing is much like trying to walk with, with, with God. Like in order to, to endure the hairpin turns, right? You have to turn the wheel in the opposite direction. It's like this, this picture up here that shows cars. Now, Cars is one of my favorite movies. I'll just be public with that. I have no problem with that, okay? And s- some of you are saying the same thing. You're right. That's a great movie. And, and on the left side, you've got Doc Hudson, who's an older racer that's retired, right? And, and Doc Hudson's on that side. And Lightning McQueen, which is the red car, he's the new, younger generation, upcoming fast, Furious, right? He's got all those sponsors on the side of his car. And Doc takes them out to help him train on how to race. And Doc, as they're racing around this first hairpin corner, you notice Doc on the other side there, he's, he's going left, but he's turning the wheels to the right, right? Well, Lightning thinks he knows it all. He flies right by Doc and he turns the wheels the same direction that they're going. And he ends up going flying off of the racetrack over into a huge cactus pen, right? And, and, and crashes. And Doc kind of smiles and finishes out the race in front of him. And he trains lightning. Listen, when you come to these hairpin turns, right? You can't turn with the turn. You've got to turn against it and you'll get through it. And the same is with walking, right? In our culture that's begging you to go a certain way, Right? You join in with it and turn it the same way all the culture's going, it's going to crash. But if you turn, if you want to go left and turn it right, you can endure those hard turns and do the right thing and not compromise. See, the culture says to raise yourself up, to get ahead. And Jesus says to be humble and take the low place and he'll raise you up. The culture says to sleep together, to see if you're compatible before marriage. And Jesus says to keep the marriage bed pure. The culture says to cut corners, to get by. And Jesus says, round every corner to grow in being trustworthy. Listen, the plot thickens and the bomb's going to get ready to drop in verse 10. Notice in verse 10, what happens. Imagine this scene. Pilate says to him, verse 9, he said, where are you from? Jesus doesn't answer. He comes in verse 10. He says, hey, don't you know that I have authority. Will you not speak to me? Don't you know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And then come, then come in the text, 
some of the most profound words in the book of John, where the king of the universe, you imagine this scene, the one who thinks he's in control is not in control. He's standing there over this one who's bleeding, who's, who's struggling, and looks as if maybe he's the weakest one in all of Jerusalem. And he speaks. And notice what he speaks. He says, Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Listen, listen, God is working all things together for good, even the worst of things. The killing of the son of God, one of the most horrific acts, if not the horrific act on the planet, not only saves us, but shows us that when bad things happen, the sovereign one is working. The sovereign one is working. The king is where Pilate's not in control. God's in control. Yes, there's responsibility from Pilate. And yes, Jesus says in John 10, he's going to lay his life down. But there's questions that come out of this, is it not? Questions that I have, questions that you have, questions like this. You know, what about the problem of evil? What about why bad things happen? What about uh, how can a loving God allow such hard things to happen? You've had those questions. I have those questions. This is the number one question that those who are not Christians that object to coming to Christ, this is their number one question, their number one objection. You talk about this God of grace and mercy and love and all this bad stuff happens. I can't reconcile those two. And so let me try to build some theology this morning for us quickly. Okay? I don't have a deep answer. I don't have... It's not an easy answer. Volumes have been written to process this, but I hope this could be helpful. I know if good can come from killing the most innocent man on the planet, good can come from whatever situation you're in. I know that for me over the years of serving here at this church, 20 plus years, I feel less adequate to serve today than I did my first day. As I've grown in my knowledge of who God is and the depth of my sin that actually crucified the son of God, I've actually changed the question in my head. Those questions are real questions. Those are good questions. We invite those questions. But for me, as I've moved, growing with him in these 20 years, I've actually changed the question. I'm asking God this question now. I'm asking God, I'm asking God this question. I'm asking God, how in the world can a holy, righteous, omnipotent, all-powerful, pure God not take me out immediately? How can a holy, righteous God not take all of us out, all of humanity that have turned against him? I've been humbled by reading this word to see the depth of my sin and the grace and the greatness of a sovereign God. I'm shocked he hasn't taken us all out. Each day is a gift of grace from his hand. 
And listen, we, these are hard questions. These are real questions. And, and listen, at the end of the day, I have to cling to the answers I do know. And what I do know is I'm a wretched man in need of a great savior. And he did take someone out in my place. His son, the most righteous man. Oh, the irony of the text. Mystery of the ages will be unveiled at some point and sometime of how this works. But let me encourage you this morning. Listen, trust in the sufficiency of his word that shows us even as the savior of the world is bleeding to death, God's working to use that death to bring us life. He's using that pain to bring us peace. He's using that tragedy to bring us triumph. He's using that moment to right our mess. He's using that crushing to recreate. He's using that plan to bring his provision. And he's using that horror to bring our hope. Oh, listen, we find ourselves, don't, do we not, in so many situations where we want to play the sovereign? Right? The king of the universe has died for our sin, provided a way for eternal life, and we struggle with daily trust. Listen, we trust seatbelts. We trust pilots. We trust dentists. We trust doctors. We trust expiration dates on a gallon of milk, don't we? We don't question that. We know it's bad. If we drink it, we're going to get sick. And so listen, if he would not crush his son for us, not daily take care of us in some capacity, maybe not the way you see it, the way he sees it, and you could just trust that deeper. I remember specifically years ago, God taught me this trust because I struggled with, I was like, man, daily trusting, right? The, the, the end of life and hope, eternity, yeah, I'm trusting in that, but I think I can control all of these things. And he reminded me of this. I went up to Lewisburg, North Carolina, up north of Raleigh, my brother and I and one other friend, it was on a Wednesday, I remember specifically, where we were going out on this particular day to do something we've always wanted to do. It was the bucket list to parachute out of an airplane um, and, and, and jump. And so we get up there, and as we're up there in Lewisburg, we arrive, and I noticed the large plane where there's multiple people get on, and, and there's a huge door in the back. It's, it's, you kind of step up to it. You can stand up, and you slide out, and you jump out. It's kind of fun. And they weren't taking that plane up that day because... They, they use that on the weekend, and the, this particular day, they're going to take the two-seater Cessna up. And I'm like, how is this going to work, right? And he's like, well, let's do a little bit of training, and a tandem jump is where someone's attached to you that you hope has a parachute on him, right? And then they give you one on the front in case that one doesn't work. And so, so I'm like, man, okay. So we get into the plane. As we got into the plane, they had removed, this, it's a two-seat Cessna. They removed one seat so that I could, as the one who's going to hopefully live and jump out, um, slide my knees under the, 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 the dash of the plane. And so the seat's right here. It's, it's got to be a 30-year-old plane. I'm thinking maybe I should jump because I don't know if it'll make it back down. And so the plane here, and the guy driving the plane, flying the plane, is probably 19 years old with a tank top on and, just, and nothing wrong. To, I, I like tank tops. I do. But my pilot, a golf shirt or something, right? And so, so he's here and, and uh, he's like, what's up, man? And I'm like, are, are you, you're flying. And he goes, yeah, I got it. And I'm like, okay, man, praying for you and me and us. So the other guy's back here. And so we get up to 12,000 feet and we're at 12,000 feet. I'm like, oh my, and, and I'm like, how's this going to work? And he's like, okay, 
the tandem guy is going to slide up kind of behind me. He's going to hook up on the lower part of my belt twice and then two up top. And then we're going to open the door. And as we open the door of the plane, what you're going to do, you're going to slide out. You're going to put one foot out on the wheel, right? And I'm like, I actually paid to do this, right? Maybe the dumbest thing I've ever done. So I, I put that foot out. I put my other foot out. And then I cling to part of the wing on the plane, right? And I'm, hey, I'm like, this, everything I read, I didn't see this, right? It's a nice stand up, jump out the door, right? And, and so I'm sitting here and the other guy, my instructor's kind of, he's going with me out the door. And, and so as we're here, he goes, all right, here's the instruction. Um, you're going to fold them and hold them, and then you're going to lift both legs up in between mine, and then I'm going to have you suspend it from my stomach. Um, you're attached, right? So this is Dave, and this is my instructor, and I'm hanging from him because he's hooked up, and he's now on the wheel, and I'm, I'm like, I didn't envision flying outside the plane in a parachute, right? And so the pilot's kind of, he just smiles at me every now and then. He just kind of, what's up, man? <laughs> And I'm like, oh my goodness, right? And he goes, are you ready? I'm like, yes. And he goes, all right, every instruction, adhere to it. I go, yes. He goes, fold, kick, roll. Now look at the plane when we leave. Now he's whispering all this in my ear, right? Because his head's right here behind my head. I can't see him, but I can hear him, right? And he's like, look at the plane so you get a sensation of falling when we let go. (laughs) Dude, I can tell I'm I'm 12,000 feet. Above the ground. I can tell I'm gonna fall, right? So so he 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 ends up, he lets go, right? And I'm looking and Bubba, whatever his name was, driving the plane, he's smiling at me, right? And I, and we start fouling, and then we flip over. He's giving me all these instructions. I'm listening to everything he says, because the ground is getting closer, and it's a, we start falling, we're just falling so fast. And we get the arms out, and he does a few things. We turn, we fly. I'm like flying, and I look at this thing he gave me on my, and I'm like, dude, we're going 120 miles an hour. Yeah, I was like, the ground is getting a lot closer, a lot faster. Shouldn't we do something quickly, right? right? And so I'm having all these things go. And then he says, all right, it's time. And I'm like, for what? And he's like, fold. Oh, all these things. And then all of a sudden, jerk. Everything slows down. I got a 5,000 float, 5,000 foot float. Right? And he whispers in my ear. He says, It looks like we got a good shoot. Because <laughs> I can't see it. Right? And I'm like, Well, praise God. Right? right? He said, Listen, the entire experience, never once did I question him. Never once. The guy just met him that morning, and I haven't talked to him since. (laughs) Never once did I turn around and go, dude, I don't think so. I don't like the way you're doing that. No. Full trust. I can't even remember his name today. Full trust, not question. And there's a name that's been given that saved my soul from God's wrath. And I want to question him. I want to question who's in control. 
Oh, he's in control. He is working all things. He tells us in 2 Corinthians that he is able, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Let's trust. Let's trust his heart even when we can't see his hands. And let's trust his words and his ways. Let's trust him. I trusted everything this man was telling me and I couldn't see him. I could only hear him. I only had his words to hold to. Listen, he's Jesus, right? He's our substitute. He's the sovereign, but he's also the sacrifice. He's the sacrifice who summons our affections for the race, our full affections he wants for this race. And listen, as this text closes quickly, it's fascinating that Pilate has sacrificed not his reputation, but the redeemer, right? It would have cost him, yes, approval in Rome, yes, approval with them if he had followed Jesus. But no, listen, he was so concerned with being liked and approved that he actually sacrificed the son of God. It's one of the most unbelievable scenes because in verse 13, Pilate comes out. He comes out in this area. It's called the stone of pavement, this judgment seat where he sits down, this Bama seat where he sits down to pass judgment. Does he know in that moment that he is judging the judge? I mean, the irony of the text, he's going to sit down and pass judgment on this man who is Jesus who that judgment lasted three days, but the judgment in which Pilate will receive for compromising and rejecting Jesus is going to last for an eternity in hell. I mean, there's, he, I mean the, the tension of the trial, he, the judge is in front of you, the son of God is bleeding in front of you. And he makes this judgment to crucify the son of God. And so fascinating what, what John does. John helps us, doesn't he? I just want to thank John for doing this. He does this so often, just puts nugget after nugget in the text. In verse 13, the end of verse 13 could have easily transitioned to verse 15. It could have come at the stone pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha, and they cried out away with him, but he inserts. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. Why does he do that? Well, he does that because it's essential, the essential centerpiece of preparation for the celebration of the Passover. It was multiple things they had to do, but the centerpiece was the lamb, was preparing the lamb, right? Because they had killed a lamb in, years ago in Egypt, and they took that blood and they put it over the door, and the death angel passed over, right? And so they're celebrating this. It's a massive celebration of God's deliverance. And that God, Jesus would even take that and turn it into the Lord's Supper because he is the true lamb. And John tells us all of this trial, all of this is the preparation of the Passover lamb. In the moment he's being prepared for the cross, that's where he's headed. And Jesus made a great effort to penetrate Pilate's mind, right? He made, he made even a greater effort in some of the conversations with Pilate to win him over than rather to defend himself. He could have easily stood and said, don't you know and who I am? And tell him with great authority, but in humility, right? 
He submits. And Pilate asked, what is the truth? He, he was so, when he asked this, he was so near to the kingdom of God because the truth was standing in front of him that Pilate sacrificed truth for what he thought was security and he lost both. And so are you standing before God this morning? Are you oscillating? Are you compromising? Oh, let's learn. Let's learn this morning. Oh, to surrender to the one who has authority. Not political authority. Power over death. That's the power that this king has. To forgive sins and liberate from strongholds. And send his spirit. Recreate you. Put you on purpose and mission with joy in your heart, peace in your mind, and a path that will take you into the full presence of God one day. Oh, listen, let's run. Let's run with endurance because of the one who endured, and he ran, right? He ran with such endurance. Hebrews 12 tells us, he exhorts us. Jesus, look to Jesus, this founder, this perfecter of our faith, and run Because he ran, we can run. And then let's run to the city. Let's run to the city and the nations with this good news. This is the greatest news on the planet. And so let's tell someone. Let's tell someone this week. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for so much in this text to learn from and about you. And God, I pray that you would take these truths and that you would solidify them in our heart. And that even this week, God, we could be reminded of the great substitution that you made for us, that God, you're the one that's in control, that you're sovereign. And when we don't understand things or, or when it's really hard, that we come back to the things we do know, God, we, we won't have an answer for everything this side of heaven. We know that, but we have answers for a lot of things that matter this side of heaven. And so, God, would you continue to, to just show us, God, how to trust and how to cling to you. And God, remind us in these weeks, help us to not be so familiar with the Easter story that we miss the Easter story stirring affections, afresh and anew for the Savior. And so, God, would you accomplish these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.